0: here tonight. So it's online. Um, you go to teach EWCC, go to White Oak University and drop down you'll find Jack's lectures there, uh, plus the PDF of the, of the outlines that we're using each week. Okay. But uh, once again, you know, it's it's just a great pleasure to introduce Jack to you um, with all the teaching and Kid and, and I both are part of that army of guys that Jack talked about last last time uh, that he made a huge impact in our lives. And the whole, this course, Grace, was one of the most revolutionary uh, ones of all times. And I think you're gonna hear the same kinds of stuff that I heard in class nearly 30 years ago. Uh, Very special teaching, very special time. And uh, let me pray and get him into this. Lord, we just thank you for this morning. We thank you for this afternoon, and we thank you for today. It's in the midst of all that time that we are reminded of who you are. And, uh, Father, we thank you for this evening. We look forward now to the things you'll teach us and that you'll guide us with as, uh, as we hear your word and as we understand uh, more fully how grace impacts our lives. Guide now. Thanks for Jack. Give him your blessing
1: in Jesus' name. Amen. Don't go away, Rick. Uh-oh. Help, help me trade chairs here. oh wrong chair. For, forgot about how that one doesn't work. Yep. I'm just a little boy. I need a little chair. <laughs> Alright, I want you first of all to get out a pencil or a pen. If you don't have one, that's okay. As long as there's one at each table, I'll tell you what I want you to do. You all have an outline there. There's some space at the bottom of page one. I'd like for you to write two names there, one under the other. And that would be the, what I want you to do with your pencil or pen. I want you to write the name Jesus first, and under that, write your name. You think you can do that? Share, you can share pens and pencils because I won't get back to this for a while. Now, the second thing is after you've written your names, Jesus, and then your name under that, here are two words. And I want you to think about this. Which one of these words goes with Jesus and which one goes with you? All right, the two words are first of all, sin, And the second word is righteousness. And if you don't want to write out that whole word, righteousness, just write R-T-N-S, that's what I do. So those are the two, and you don't have to do that right this moment, because it's something I'm coming back to. So sin or righteousness, which one is yours and which one is Jesus's? Okay, now you're just wondering what trick is he playing on me here now? (laughs) All right, glad to see you all. This is called The Double Cure of Grace. And we're going to uh, skip page one after you get your, the things written there and go to page two. <clears throat> and there's something there about the three uses of the word grace, which we actually talked about last time, so I won't go into detail. I said sometimes the grace, word grace refers to the nature of God, uh, an attribute of God. I'm not gonna go into that. Actually, the second one is what we talked about uh, last time. We talked about grace as the way of salvation. Grace as the way of salvation and we contrasted that with what some people think is another way of salvation. And what was that? Law. 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 Hey, you got it. (laughs) So I'm not gonna go back into that contrast between law and grace uh, as such, but here's a point I want to make about grace as a way of salvation. And this is a contrast between law and grace. The way of law is fair, and the way of grace is not fair. And I want to stress that because I think this is one of the main reasons why so many people have trouble understanding the concept of grace. And that is because from the time we're little children, we're taught the virtue of fairness Everything needs to be fair. You need to get what you deserve. If you don't deserve it, you shouldn't have it. So uh, fairness is is something we hold up very high. And so it's kind of hard for us to understand that grace is not fair. And that's why we stick with law a lot. I'm going to uh, talk about an illustration that I use a lot when I talk about the difference between law and grace and the the fairness thing, and that is that um, grace and law are like two gates into heaven. I like to... This is just an illustration, okay? Don't say, where'd you get that in the Bible, Uh, because I'm just making this up as an illustration Think of heaven as a huge city. Now that much is in the Bible. Revelation 21, there is a huge city called the New Jerusalem. But just think of the city of heaven that's got this wall around it uh, that you cannot climb over. You can't go through it. You can't go under it. The only way to get in is two gates. One is the law gate and the other is the grace gate. And each one of them, has its own set of rules as to whether you get to go through that gate or not. And one set of rules is very fair and the other one isn't. Now, most most people in the world, and I said this last time, are really trying to reach God and to reach Heaven by means of law by how good they are and how how well they're obeying the law. And that's because they think that the rules for getting through the law gate into heaven are like this. And actually this is the, these are the rules of the law gate. And these are in your outline there uh, that most sinners try to be right with God by the way of law which is summed up thus. And this is the the set of rules. Keep the law's commandments and escape the law's penalty. Do you remember last time we said that law has two parts, commandments and penalty? Okay, you keep the law's commandments and you'll escape the law's penalty, which means you will go to heaven. But then the other part is break the law's commandments and suffer the law's penalty. And the scripture tells us that even if you break just one of the law's commandments, you lose your way into heaven. Uh, You cannot go through this gate. So what do you think of that set of rules? Keep the law's commandments and escape the penalty, break the commandments, suffer the penalty. Does that sound fair? Fact is, it's very fair. It's very fair. And those are the rules. Um, The main idea is you get to heaven because you deserve it. You get to go through the gate because you're good enough. But the problem is nobody is actually good enough. Because if you commit just one sin, you're not good enough. And the Bible says all have sinned. And here's the problem. The law gate into heaven is closed not only closed, it's locked. It's uh, fastened in a way that it'll never be opened. Unfortunately, most of the world's population is lined up at that law gate, hoping they'll get through it some way or other. But the the, uh, solution to that problem is not to uh, somehow fix the law gate so that it'll open. Don't think that Jesus came into the world with a some kind of a tool kit and is trying to fix this law gate somehow or pry it open so that you can squeeze through. No, Jesus came to make a whole new gate into heaven. A totally new gate, a totally new entrance. And this has a totally different set of rules for going through the gate. Uh, this is in your outline too, and this—it's very important—to get to, to to get this point of what these rules are. These are the grace gate rules. Keep the law's commandments, but suffer the law's penalty. Break the law's commandments, but escape the law's penalty. Those are the rules by which the grace system operates. And the problem is, and I could ask you, does that sound fair? Is there anything fair about the grace rules? Actually, nothing at all. These are just the opposite of fair. And since we all grew up as, from our childhood thinking fair is good and everything should be fair, we should not do anything that's not fair, it's so difficult to understand grace because it's the very opposite of fair. I used to ask people when I taught lessons on grace, I, I used to ask the, the crowd, how many of you want God to be fair with you on the Day of Judgment? And I don't ask that question anymore because there were always people who would raise their hands. And I hated to embarrass them by telling them, no, you don't. You're wrong. You don't want God to be fair with you on the day of judgment. Because the Bible says the wages of sin is death. See, wages is fair. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we're talking about uh, not, not something that's fair. It's the opposite of fair. Even though it's so hard to think in other ways. Let me give you this illustration. Back when I was first starting to think about grace, uh, which was very early in my teaching career. This was probably in the 1960s because I st- actually started teaching in 1967. About that time, uh, one of my friends was editor of the uh, Bible Teacher and Leader, which was the Standard Publishing Teachers, Adult Teachers Quarterly. And they usually had some uh, essays in every Teachers Quarterly and the editor, many of you would know his name if I called it, I'm not going to. He he said, uh, he asked me if I would write an article for the Bible teacher and leader on the grace of God. And that was one of the first times I've wrote anything on the grace of God. I was so thrilled to be able to do that. And in that essay, I made this statement, grace as undeserved favor is the opposite of justice, which is like fairness. I said, grace as undeserved favor is the opposite of justice. Well, I turned the essay in and uh, waited till time for that to be published, and I, hadn't, I don't know if I'd had anything at all published before that, so I was excited, you know, to see that uh, essay to that issue of the Bible teacher leader. So, Finally it came out, and I got the copy, and I opened it to my essay, and I was reading through it, and I came to that sentence, and it said, grace as undeserved favor is different from justice. (laughs) What? (laughs) I didn't say that, and I didn't want to say that. And the, the editor changed it on his own without asking me. Boo.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> but you know, I, I look back and I say, that's, I can see because he grew up in the Restoration movement and we, we just didn't grasp this idea of, of grace being so different from law and from justice and fairness. Well, look, look back at that two rules of grace above. Keep the law's commandments, but suffer the law's penalty. Break the law's commandments, but escape the law's penalty. And let me ask you, do you like that? Do you like that system? Does that, does that one suit you? Yes. I hope so, because that's your only hope of going to heaven. You don't have any hope of getting through the law gate. They're just Sinners cannot enter through the law gate. That's why God made a gate that sinners can go through, even though it's the opposite of what's fair. But What about line one? What about the first rule? That one, even people who think about the, the second one and they say, well, I'm glad that second rule's there. Yeah, break the commandments, but escape the penalty. Wonderful. But then we look back at number one and it says, keep the commandments, but suffer the penalty. Who in the world wants that? And let me ask you, do you know anybody that would apply to? Mm -hmm. Because everybody sinned, right? Everybody?
2: What?
1: There's somebody that hasn't sinned? And who was it? Jesus. Jesus. Uh Aha. Let me tell you this, when you look at that first rule there, keep the law's commandments, but suffer the law's penalty. Don't shake your head and say, I wish that wasn't there. Because that wasn't put there for you. That was put there for just one person, the only person that would ever keep all the law's commandments. And that's Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God. Jesus is the only person that applies to. And if it were not for that line, there wouldn't be a second line. Because Jesus is what makes the second line possible. What did Jesus actually do? He kept all the law's commandments. We know this. The Bible says He was without sin. He was tempted in every way like we are yet without sin. The only person. Never broke a law's commandment. And that's in Hebrews 4.15 if you wanted to look it up. So Jesus kept all the commandments of the law code that applied to Him as a human being living under the old covenant. And what else did Jesus do? He suffered the penalty of the law for us. This is why he came. He came for grace. So I want to show you this. Uh, This is a passage of scripture from last time, but I didn't go into detail about it. This is Romans 3, verse 24 to 26. You may remember that uh, in the book of Romans, up through chapter 3, verse 20, that the Apostle Paul is showing us that by works of law, by how well you keep your law code, no human being will ever be forgiven or justified in God's sight. But then in Romans 3, 21, he starts talking about the grace gate and how we're justified by faith in what Jesus did. So what did Jesus do? Look in Romans 3, verse 24, 25, and 26. It says, and I'm using the New American Standard Bible, that we are justified as a gift, and that's because it's grace, and grace is a gift. We're justified, and what's another word for justified? Forgiven, Forgiven. yes. We're justified or forgiven as the gift of grace. Through, and here's the word, one of the words I want you to notice, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Just remember that word, redemption. We call Jesus our Redeemer. He has redeemed us through His redemption. And that's was on the cross, Uh, the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Then look at verse 25 whom God displayed publicly as a... Now here's another word I want you to notice. This is not in all of your translations because it's a big old fancy word that nobody uses anymore. But it's in this translation, one reason I use it, (laughs) that God displayed Jesus publicly as a propitiation. Now some of you will have a sacrifice of atonement or something like that. But the word is a propitiation. I'll tell you what it means in just a minute. But anyway, you've got those two words. Jesus came to be a redemption and a propitiation. And He did that through His blood that He shed on the cross. He is a propitiation through faith in His blood, which is the way that should be translated and that was to demonstrate God's righteousness because of the forbearance of God. He passed over sins previously committed in the Old Testament times. He was forgiving sins even in Old Testament times because of what Jesus was going to do. Well anyway, what do those two words mean? Redemption, propitiation. Redemption is pretty much the same as uh, paying a ransom. It's paying a price to set somebody free, or even a thing, if somebody has stolen something from you and says, I'll, I'll give it back to, me, to you if you give me $100. They're asking you to redeem that thing that they've stolen from you. Paying a price to set something free. Uh, for instance, in the Old Testament, uh, the Law of Moses says if, if you're a slave If you had to become a slave because you owed so much money to somebody, somebody can redeem you if they'll pay off your debt. That's in the Law of Moses. That's called redemption, paying the price, paying the debt that's owed. You're redeemed. Jesus redeemed us. I'll talk in a moment about how we are debtors to God. We owe God a debt that we could not pay. Jesus came to pay the debt for us. That's why He redeemed us. And the debt—well, let me just tell you what the, what debt we owe to God. We owe God eternal punishment in hell because of our sin. That's our debt. Someday, all sinners are going to be held uh, responsible for that debt except those who are Christians. And the only reason we're not held responsible is because Jesus paid the debt and we have accepted that through our faith in Him. So He paid the debt. Oh, I forgot to sing the songs. Well, let's sing one of them. Uh, This one, I got it written down here so, so I won't forget it. I will sing of my Redeemer and His wondrous love to me. On the cruel cross He suffered from the curse to set me free. Sing, O sing, of my Redeemer with His blood purchased me on the cross he sealed my pardon paid the debt and made me free now what's that song about it's about redemption I will sing of my redeemer he paid a price to set me free now the other word that's used there in verse 25, propitiation. If you want to use the Greek word, it's hilosmos, so you you can take your choice. (laughs) I know this is a hard word, but it's an important word. Whatever you use to understand it, whatever you pronounce, it means to turn away wrath by means of an offering. To turn away wrath by means of an offering. When, when I was a, when I and my wife were members here in this congregation, and we we started in 1967. Uh, I don't, I forget when we changed, but it, we were here for probably what, how long, Barb? Ten years, maybe. Eight years. She knows no, she, at least
2: that
1: at least eight. But anyway. Uh, I, I I can't remember now if if I did this or somebody I was talking to did it, but there there was a um, flower shop in this neighborhood that had a special for husbands, <laughs> and I, I I should have searched this up out because I've forgotten now exactly what the wording was. It was like a. Uh, Here's a, buy a a flower for your wife who's mad at you.
0: Um,
1: Okay, I went right in. No, I didn't. (laughs) But I thought at the time, that, that's where you could go and buy a propitiation. You buy an offering to turn away her wrath. Here's a flower, honey, I'm sorry for what I did. And she says, oh, I forgive you. Thanks for the flower. And see, the propitiation works. The offering turns away the wrath. In many religions of the world, this is how people think their sins are taken away. They offer up some kind of personal gift to God, some kind of personal sacrifice. Uh, Another illustration, We, we were in Rio de Janeiro on a mission trip uh, back in the 1970s, I think it was. And somebody was showing us around in Rio de Janeiro, and we were driving through this park, a uh, beautiful national park, because there's huge mountains here on one side and here on the other side. It's like the, the ocean. But anyway, as we were walking along, we passed, or driving along, we passed a waterfall, beautiful waterfall coming down from the mountain. And at the foot of the waterfall, somebody had built a rock wall. And uh, there wasn't anybody there, but on this rock wall were plates of food and bottles of wine. That's how we knew it wasn't a Sunday school picnic. <laughs> so uh, we asked the person who was driving, what, what is this? And he explained, he says, the, the people who live here like the natives, they believe that the gods live in these waterfalls. And so they bring these gifts of food, plates of food and drink, to kind of turn away the wrath of these gods so that bad things don't happen to them. So that their crops will be good. You know, turn away wrath by an offering It's a common idea throughout the world. That's one reason why a lot of your translations don't use the word propitiation. They think it sounds too much like paganism. But actually, propitiation is exactly the right idea because that is what the cross of Jesus Christ does. It turns away wrath by Jesus offering up Himself as the object of that wrath. This is what the death of Jesus is all about. This is what the atonement of Jesus is all about. He is our substitute. The wrath of God that we deserve is directed toward Jesus. And He takes all of that for the whole world upon Himself turning the wrath of God away from us by accepting it upon Himself. Jesus is our Redeemer. He is our propitiation. Now I want you to go back to page one where you wrote the names. I I told you to write uh, Jesus and your name and then write either the word sin or the word righteousness after one or the other. Now when you, I said which one belongs to you? Which one goes with you? And which one goes with Jesus? I won't ask you to raise your hands or anything, but if you were thinking normally you probably wrote after Jesus name righteousness and after your name sin. That would be the normal way of thinking. But under grace, it's the very opposite. Under grace, sin goes with Jesus and righteousness goes with you. I'm going to show you this. Second Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21. This in a way sums up the whole concept of grace. Second Corinthians 5 verse 21. And it says simply this, that He, that's God the Father, made Him, which is God the Son Jesus, God made Him who knew no sin to be sin. Sin goes with Jesus under grace. Because he took our sin upon himself. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. So that, so that we, we who are actually sinners, might become what? The righteousness of God in him. When we are in Christ Jesus as Christians... When God looks at us, when God looks at you in Christ Jesus, He does not see your face. He sees the face of Jesus. Just because when God looked at Jesus on the cross, whose face did He see? He saw your face. We talk about Jesus in the substitutionary atonement that Jesus traded places with us sinners. And that's exactly right. He traded places. He took what we deserve so that we could have what He deserves. But I also like to think about it as Jesus trading faces with us. And that helps us to have this assurance of our salvation because if you're a Christian, if you're in Christ Jesus, When God looks at you, he doesn't see your face, the sinner's face. He sees the face of Jesus. So you may have to correct what you wrote on that first page. What goes with Jesus under grace is sin and punishment, wrath and what goes with us is righteousness. God's righteousness, the righteousness of God. That's how the grace gate works. That's how the grace rules work. All Christians, all saved people, are under grace as a way of salvation. We saw that last week. And thus we'll enter heaven through the grace gate according to grace rules. Now, I want to come to the third way that we use the word grace. We've talked about it as an attribute of God and as a way of salvation. Actually, uh, this is supposed to be my main subject tonight. Grace as the content of our salvation. Now, you know that the word grace in Greek is charis, C-H-A-R-I-S, you may even know people who are named charis, because they take that Greek word as a, a, a beautiful name. The, the Greek word simply means a gift, a gift that brings joy. Those two things go together in the word charis, a gift and joy. So a, a, a gift is, it's a thing, it's a something. So if you have grace, if you've received grace from God, and if you're a Christian, you have received grace, because when you were baptized into Christ, you went down into the water without grace, and when you came out of the water, you had this package in your hands. A package. What's in this package? Grace. The contents of grace What was given to you. In, in your conversion. What is that content of grace? This is where I, I have been talking for 50, 60 years about the double cure of grace. I actually started thinking about this when I was a student at Westminster Seminary in a preaching class and I was preaching a uh, a sermon for class, preparing that and as I was preparing that sermon, it was actually on Romans 8. Romans 8 verses 1 to 4, that was my sermon for the day. And as I was studying for that, I came across this idea, I don't know where it was now, about the song Rock of Ages having this line in it, be of sin the double cure save from wrath. Uh, We know what that is. That's the justification. And make me pure. Aha. That's the other part of grace. Two things. Justification, forgiveness on the one hand. Then the, well, what is this other one that makes me pure? We're going to talk about that one. It's regeneration and sanctification. But we call this the double cure. When I started preaching about this, I. I thought, well, if we've got a double cure, it must be curing two things. So I started using the, the term double trouble. because it, I thought that sounds nice. Double trouble, double cure. And it was. I don't know how long it was until one day in class, seminary class, had a student. Probably wasn't you, Bill. But somebody in class says, you know what? Instead of double trouble, why don't you start talking about the double curse? Because it's little, almost the same word as cure. Just leave the S out. Double curse, double cure. Ah, So I've been doing that ever since. I forget who it was now that told me that. (laughs) But anyway, um, I I like to illustrate the the double curse this way. Let's say, let's say you're, uh, I'm just talking to the men here now. For for you as a man, let's say you have a bad temper. You, You just you just got a bad temper. You, get, you fly off the handle without you know, no good reason. And one day, you and your wife get in an argument, and you just fly off the handle, and you get so mad, you just go out the front door, you slam that front door, you go out and jump in your car in the driveway, and you slam that door, and you start up the car, and you back out into the middle of the street without even looking. Bam. Truck smashes into you. Terrible story, why am I telling this? (laughs) Well, because almost immediately somebody calls that in. And if you were there, you would immediately hear two sirens, two sirens hurrying to this accident. One is a police car. Because when you made that terrible, bad move of backing out into the middle of the street, you broke the law, my friend. You broke the law. You're a sinner. You deserve the, the, the police to come and give you a ticket and arrest you, take you to court, take you before the judge, be sentenced to some kind of a terrible penalty in jail, you lawbreaker. <laughs> but the other, here, here's another siren coming from the other way. And you look and, ah, ambulance. Because you also broke your leg in that wreck two different problems. You broke the law, you broke your leg. Sin does that to every one of us, to our spirit. Uh, when we become sinners, and that's from the time we're just starting to grow as children learning about right and wrong. You know, we talk about the uh, age of accountability and we don't have a set age for that, but we talk about the child reaching the age of accountability. Let's just say it's uh, 10 to 12 years old. That does not mean that's when a child starts to sin. It's just that he's not accountable yet. The children start doing things that are wrong from early age. That's not because they have original sin, because there is no such thing as original sin. Some people think they, that there is because they don't understand Romans 5, verse 12 and following. I don't know what you all did with Romans 5:12 and following, but this is where it says, Because of that one man, Adam, everybody dies. Because of that one man, Adam, everybody is counted guilty. Because of that one man, Adam, everybody's a sinner. Remember that? Oh, yeah. Well, most of the Christian world has looked at that passage and all they've seen... It's what it says about Adam. But that's not Paul's point. He says, yeah, because of one man, Adam, everybody dies. Because of one man, Adam, everybody's condemned. Because of one man, Adam, everybody's a sinner. But his main point is because of the one man, Jesus. All are given life. Because of the one man, Jesus, all are justified. Because of the one man, Jesus, all are righteous. What do you mean all? All? Yeah, as babies. This passage is talking about two things. All babies and then all believers. First, all babies. The death of Jesus on the cross, which Paul refers to as one act of righteousness. God's righteousness. Suffering this, redemp- or uh, accomplishing this redemption and propitiation. Whatever, listen, listen to the way I'm saying this, whatever babies would have received because of Adam's one sin is removed from all babies as a result of Christ's one act of righteousness. I don't know why the Christian world has not seen that. They they want to hold on to this original sin idea. Uh, it answers a lot of questions for them, I guess, but uh, That's not Paul's point at all. In fact, I don't even use the word original sin. When I read that passage, I use the term original grace. Because every baby is born under original grace because of Jesus. Now, when they reach the age of accountability, they lose that grace and become accountable for any sins that they have started to commit and anything they'll do after that. But not because of Adam's sin. Nobody goes to hell because of Adam's sin. Unless it's Adam himself, and I I believe he had a chance to repent and be saved, so I'm not going to say that he was. Anyway, because of our own sin, we have two problems, the double curse. And this is put upon us by God. Sin makes us guilty. not going to spend a lot of time on this because we we went into uh, this some last time. Guilt means you've broken the law. You're in a bad relation, a wrong relationship to the law of God. Please do not confuse guilt with guilt feelings. Guilt feelings are something inside you. It's a subjective attitude of your mind and heart. But guilt, guilt will be there even if you don't have guilt feelings. If you're a sinner, you have guilt. You've broken the law. It's an external thing. It's not inside you. It's it's an external thing. It's like being in debt. When you're in debt to the bank, you don't feel something inside you. It's just, it's on paper somewhere. It's an external thing. In the Bible, sin is spoken of as a debt. I don't know when you learned the Lord's Prayer, what you learned. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And what? Our debts. Forgive us our what? Debts. 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 Now, some of you, i bet, didn't learn debts there. What did you learn? Trespasses. Trespasses. I don't know why people, some of those translators are so reluctant because it's literally the word debt. And the Bible talks about sin as being in debt, owing something to God. Forgive us our debts. How serious is that debt? What do we owe? I don't know if you remember this parable Jesus told in Matthew 18 about a king who had loaned some money to some of his servants. The point of the parable is something a little different. It's about forgiveness, actually. But uh, he had loaned this one servant. uh, The actual number is 10,000 talents. And a talent is a sum of money. Now, my Bible footnote says that uh, one talent was equal to 15 years of payment for labor. 15 years of uh, salary or labor payment. Now, you multiply that by (laughs) 10,000, That means this, this poor servant owed the king 150,000 years of wages. Wow. And you know, we look at that and we say, that's ridiculous, that's stupid. But I think Jesus' point was, we need to realize that the penalty for our sin, what we owe to God, is eternity in hell. That's the debt. Sin makes us guilty owing that debt. The other thing that sin does, it makes us sick, spiritually sick. And as your outline says, it weakens our wills, we become weak spiritually, and it makes it easy for Satan to tempt us uh, to sin. Is that somebody in here barking? (laughs) Never mind. Now the deal here is this, guilt, I said that's outside of you. That's something on your outside. But this spiritual sickness is on your inside. It affects your heart, your soul, your spirit. Sin makes us sick. Our spiritual nature is corrupted, it's diseased, it's depraved. Yes, we have a sinful nature. Now that's not because of Adam. We didn't inherit that, but as we were growing up, as we were learning from our sinful parents and from our sinful playmates and our sinful teachers in school, sin is catching like a disease. And children, we all absorbed this, and our spiritual natures became sinful. And the analogy that the Bible uses is the disease of the body. Um, One of the most famous uh, passages on this is Isaiah, uh, not Isaiah, but Jeremiah. Some of you know that I had cancer and uh, took chemotherapy. One of the problems that's left over is called neuropathy. I can't use my hands or feet very well. And one of the problems is turning pages. (laughs) So uh, you'll have to excuse me on that sometimes. But uh, Jeremiah 17, verse 9 says, and, and this is universal, the heart, and when the Bible uses the word heart, almost every time it's talking about the inner man, the soul, or the spirit. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. The heart the soul, the spiritual side of your nature, is sick. Well, sinful. Let me read you a passage out of Isaiah. This is in the first chapter of Isaiah, verse 5 and 6. And Isaiah is talking to the Jews, especially here. It says, where will you be stricken again as you continue in your rebellion? You know, this, Sometimes you read the prophets, you say, boy, those Jews must have been awful wicked. Well, the fact is they were, most of them. And the prophets just don't, they just are sent by God to try to get them to repent. Why Are you going to continue in your rebellion? And then he says to, the, the, to them, the whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint from the sole of your foot even to your head, there's nothing sound in it, just bruises and welts and raw wounds, not pressed out or bandaged and not softened with oil." Now, if you just try to picture that in your mind, it's like somebody, some human being's been run through a wringer somewhere and is filled with sores that are just bleeding. The point is, In God's sight, that's what a sinner's soul looks like. That's what this sinful nature idea is. Actually, the New Testament says we're so sick, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. This is uh, Ephesians 2, verse 1. When we were dead in... I want you to notice the next word our trespasses and sins. Not Adam's. When we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God made us alive. Dead in trespasses and sins. There are a lot of people in the restoration movement that just don't believe this. They reject that idea that there's a sinful nature in us and they're very Adamant about it. They, and this is a view that's actually called Pelagianism. I won't go into details. It's named after a guy named Pelagius. But the, the view is that if you're talking about sin, you're talking about an action. Only actions are sinful, not people. Well, that view is pretty popular, but it's not biblical. People are sinful sinners are sinful. Now, I had a passage from the Gospels I wanted to use, but it must be somewhere else. Jesus talked to the Pharisees and he, He said to the Pharisees, you evil people, you being evil, you are evil, He says. One of the problems of having this sinful nature... Now, in your outline, I, I described it this way. It weakens our wills, makes it easy for Satan to tempt us to sin. But let me show you what Paul said about it here in Romans. This is in the 8th chapter of Romans. In verses 7 and 8, he's, he's, he's contrasting people who are not Christians with people who are Christians. That is, people who are following the way of the flesh and people who are following the way of the Spirit. Uh, In uh, verse 7, Romans 8, verse 7, because the mind set on the flesh, the mind, your spiritual thinking abilities, is hostile toward God because it does not subject... Notice this. It does not subject itself to the law of God for it is not even able to do so. That is about as sinful, well, as the Bible describes us. You know, one reason people don't like to talk about this, they think it sounds too much like Calvinism. Calvinism. Calvinists believe in depravity. Well, not just depravity. What do they believe in? Total Total depravity. And the, the essence of total depravity is no free will. You've lost your free will. You are not able to choose to do good. You're not even able to choose to believe in Jesus. You're just not able to do anything good. Total depravity. So people say, I don't want to believe something like that. Well, the Bible doesn't teach total depravity. Here's what it does teach. It says, the mind that is set on the flesh does not subject itself to the law of God, and it's not even able to subject itself to the law of God. Not able to obey God's laws like God wants them to be obeyed. That's a kind of inability. That's a kind of depravity. What's the difference between that and what the Calvinists teach? You have to remember something I told you about last week, I think I did, Not or last lesson. There are two kinds of commandments. There are law commandments. What other kind are there? Maybe we didn't go into this. Grace commandments, gospel commandments. The New Testament talks about obeying and disobeying the gospel. And the gospel commandments are what God gives you, tells you to do to be saved. The law tells you how you're supposed to act after you're saved. There's law commandments, which is most of the commandments, and then there's the the gospel commandments. Now what does Paul say that the sinner is not able to do here? He is not able to subject himself to the law. And the next verse says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Cannot. That's how depraved we are. But that's not total depravity because Paul doesn't say that the sinner cannot obey the gospel. The sinner can obey the gospel. That's where the Calvinist gets it so awfully wrong, because the sinner says, or the Calvinist says, sinners can't even obey the gospel. So if if nobody can obey the gospel, how's anybody saved? Well, according to Calvinism, God picks people out to save them and gives them the gift of faith. I won't go into that, but it's not biblical. All right, double curse. Guilt, sickness, sin, sick. I have thought about writing an article for some magazine about this. Um, A magazine that people would actually read. Um, See, not Christian Standard or not Restoration Herald. I know you all may subscribe, but you don't really read it,
0: yeah.
1: But I'm thinking of a magazine like the National Enquirer. You know, one you pick up at the grocery store, at the checkout, because all you, all you need is a fancy title, a, a, a title that'll catch people's eyes. Ooh, I want to read that. So I'm going to write an article on this double curse, and I'm going to say, preacher confesses I'm in trouble with the law, and I've got a bad disease. Signed, Bill Custer. <laughs> or maybe Kent Oder. <laughs> but that's that sums it up, really. This is the double trouble, the double curse. I'm in trouble with God's law. I've got a bad disease. This is where grace enters. God gives us grace to solve both of these problems. How does he solve the guilt problem? This is is the justification or the forgiveness of sins. Because what, what did Jesus do when he was doing this work of redemption and propitiation? Paying our debt. Paying our debt. So that we don't owe any debt now. We don't owe any debt. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And that's because we're justified. We're forgiven. I told you last time that uh, forgiveness or justification is a law court thing. Justification is uh, what a judge says when there's a criminal that's... When a, when a criminal, well, I shouldn't say it this way. It's what a judge says when either a good person or a bad person standing before him, a judge can say, okay, you're guilty and you're going to jail, or he can say, no penalty for you. Now that's what he'll say to any innocent person. No penalty for you. So innocent people are justified. They should be anyway. But even if we're guilty, God looks at us and says, no penalty for you. Why not? because Jesus paid it. We don't owe it anymore. And we've got to let that sink in. See, being justified or forgiven, that's not a change inside of you. It's a change in your relation to the law of God. Or more specifically, I like to think of being justified or forgiven this way, it's a change in the very mind of God Himself. Because when when you come up out of the waters of baptism with that package of grace in your hand that's got justification in it or forgiveness of sin, when you went down into the water, God was looking at you as a guilty sinner. But when you come up out of the water, it's changed in God's mind. You're no longer looked at. God is no longer looking at you as a guilty sinner. He's looking at you as forgiven by the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. It's a change in God's own mind. I told you last time that we should use the word forgiveness more precisely. It's not just sins that are forgiven. What else? You, the person. The person is forgiven. You are a forgiven person even though there are sins still in your life, even though there's sinful nature still in your life that hasn't been removed yet, you're a forgiven person. We are in a state of forgiveness. Now, I only have two hours left. I think I can finish. (laughs) The second gift, actually, I wasn't going to, take a lot of time tonight on this anyway, but I'm gonna ask for at least five more minutes. The second part of this gift that you have received when you come up out of the waters of baptism, and I'm gonna talk about baptism next time, that'll be a large part of what I'll talk about. God in that act of grace gives us the gift of regeneration. It's another word we don't use very often. We don't talk about being regenerated. But the Bible does. And what it's about is, well let me ask you this. Have you ever been sick? Physically? uh uh-huh. Of course we all have. What do you do when you're sick? Go to the doctor. And the, the doctor either gives you medicine or tells you to do these exercises, or says you've got to operate, the, the doctor's going to do something. You're going to do something to heal your sickness. When you accept the gift of God's grace, God is doing something to heal the sickness of your soul. At least He's starting the process. And that's because in, in the gift of grace, God gives you the gift of the Holy Spirit. The gift of the Holy Spirit to be a presence, indwelling presence, in your very body, in your heart, in your life, in yourself. The Holy Spirit comes into you like a doctor, and immediately begins a healing process on your soul. Th- this is something that this we, we sometimes just don't think about this very much but this was not given to people in Old Testament times. That part of grace for some reason God withheld until the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost as described in the second chapter of Acts when the new covenant began, when the church began, from that point on, this second part of the double cure has been given. Because it has to do with the gift of the Holy Spirit as something new. Uh, I've had more time, we, uh, we talk about the Old Testament teaching which says, where God says, I'm going to do something new one of these days. It's uh Isaiah 43 and 44, uh, if you want to look it up, 43, 19, and 20, a new thing, he says. and in verse chapter 44, verse 3 and 4, it's the Holy Spirit that's this new thing. When the Holy Spirit comes, there is a change that takes place in our soul, in our spirit, where the s- sinful nature is where that disease and spiritual death is, where we're dead in trespasses and sins. The process of healing begins. It's like a heart operation. One of the passages in the Old Testament is Ezekiel 36, verse 25 to 27, uh, where um, the prophet Ezekiel, and I think it's a messianic prophecy talking about the new covenant age, it says... uh, when the Holy that God's going to give the Holy Spirit, and in that gift of the Spirit, He's going to take out your old heart, the heart of stone, and He's going to replace it with the heart of flesh, that is a soft heart, a healed heart. That's what the gift of the Holy Spirit's about: heart transplant, spiritual heart transplant. Again, there are many people in the restoration movement who totally reject this idea. They think it's too Calvinistic. We can't believe that the Holy Spirit actually does something to our heart. That's what Calvinists believe. There were people, I I won't tell this whole story, but when I was a teacher at Cincinnati Bible Seminary teaching these things, there were people on our faculty who totally disagreed with me and actually tried to get me fired we're teaching this material about uh, the Holy Spirit working directly upon our hearts as an act of grace to heal us from our spiritual death and sickness. Uh, It didn't happen, (laughs) uh, but uh, it was a sad time for me. What, What the Bible talks about when it's talking about this act Let me give you the biblical language. Maybe next time I can go into a little more of this. It talks about regeneration. Titus chapter 3 verse 5 talks about the washing, which is baptism, of regeneration and renewing. We are regenerated. What does it mean to be regenerated? It means to be given a new beginning. Regenerated. Generated Generated, uh, to begin, to start. And it says, the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Jesus used the language born again. John 3, you must be born again. Same idea. Born of water and spirit. Uh, Paul uses the term new creation. Anybody that's in Christ is a new creature. And he says in Ephesians 2.10 that as a result of being saved by grace through faith, uh, you are a new creation in Christ Jesus. I'll um, we'll talk more about that next time. Um, but especially, he talks about being raised from the dead. We're raised from the dead. When we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God raised us from the dead. That's by the Holy Spirit. Well, that's not the end of the story, it's only the beginning. Uh, And uh, what I'm going to talk about next time is what's the result of that regeneration, especially. Let me give you one illustration to close here. Um, I got several, but I got to pick out just one because I'm going to get. want to tell you about the man who had the dream. I got to tell you that because it goes back to the gate, gates into heaven. This is in my book Set Free, which is all about grace. This is the big book on grace. You're getting the little one uh, when you get that one back there. But I saw this illustration many years ago. It's uh, pardon me for not being able to Ah, uh, sorry. Okay, had the wrong page. Okay. Okay. Th- this is this is what I first saw in a church newsletter, and it came by mail, paper newsletter. That's an ancient thing. This is a story about an active, dedicated, hardworking church member who dreamed, it's a dream, that he had died after a long, satisfying life. As he approached the gate of heaven, he noticed a sign posted there, entrance requirement, 1,000 points. Oh, the man looked a little bit worried. He walked up to the angel guarding the gate, and he said, "Mm, that requirement sounds pretty high. Do you think I might have that thousand points? The angel said, Well, that's why I'm here. I'm going to examine you. Tell me all that you've done during your life, and I'll tell you how many points you've earned. Oh, said the man enthusiastically. Well, I was immersed believer in Christ for 32 years. I taught a Sunday school class for over 12. I was a youth chaperone when they needed me, and I was a regular member of the praise team. (laughs) The angel says, that's wonderful. Now, let's see, that's worth uh, one point. The man suddenly became very pale and began to perspire. But he went on. He said, well, I tithed all my income, sometimes gave more. I served as an elder in the church. I served on the finance committee and the building committee. I attended every work day. I mowed the grass. I did repairs and so on. He looked expectantly at the angel who smiled sympathetically and says, that's great. That's worth another point. Now you've got two. The man looked like he was going to go into shock. He spoke rapidly with a sense of desperation. I invited a lot of people to church and went calling with the preacher. Won people to Christ. I supported the camp program. Never cheated on my income tax. The angel tried to speak encouragingly and said, that's quite a good record of good works. That's worth another point. Now you have three. The poor man's face sagged with futility. His shoulders drooped, seemed resigned to his fate. He says, I might as well give up. I don't think I could ever be good enough to get into heaven. In fact, it seems impossible for me or anybody else to get in there without the grace of God." Ah, said the angel, now you're talking. That's worth the other 997 points. That's when the man woke up from his dream. His bed was soaked with perspiration, but he had a smile on his face and a whole new outlook on the Christian life. I never use that illustration anymore without changing the end. Because I don't like the idea that he had earned three points worth of heaven. (laughs) And grace just covers what he had not accomplished himself. So I've changed the end. All right, I've changed it twice actually, but here's the way I do it now. After the man says, uh, I may as well give up. There's no way to get in there without the grace of God. Then it comes like this. Then the angel says, Oh, did you say grace? Well, do you know what? You're standing at the wrong gate. This is the law gate. That's where you need the thousand points. Look, Look over there. Do you see that other gate? Do you see those people lined up there? That's the grace gate. You don't need any points to get in there because under grace, heaven is free. All right, I got enough to go another hour, but uh, let's let's see what we got here. This is question and answer time. Now, don't say to yourself, if we're just sitting here quiet, he'll go another hour. I'm not gonna do it. (laughs) (laughs) Any questions? This is, this is when the preachers come up with their pre prepared questions when nobody has any. Do
2: you have any
1: other songs? <laughs> <laughs> oh, we could sing again. Uh, I am not under law, I'm under grace. It was grace that rescued me. It was grace that set me free. I have sought, I have found a hiding place. I am not under law. I am under grace. We learned that one last week. What's your question? What we got? Okay.
2: It's not exactly a question, but it's... uh, it's an illustration I use when I teach in uh, John 3, where it talks about being born of water and the Spirit. And then it, uh, a few later verses later, it says, what's of the flesh? is The flesh has got to be of the Spirit. Uh, since we're in the era uh, scientifically where people are starting to understand the human genome, I say that in the Spirit filling us in baptism, Guess what? We get new DNA. So that's a way to help people today understand the change that takes place. We, we now have, you might say, the Spirit's DNA. Instead of just, we're born with our original grace, right? So we were at least could understand that we needed Jesus. But uh, I think that helps some people to understand that your DNA gets changed. Your spiritual DNA gets
1: changed. Well, that, that, yeah, that would be, as long as we understand that that's the spirit, yep. not our physical oh, DNA, yes. yeah, uh, it does change. Because no. that's what the Holy Spirit is there for, is to change us in our very nature from death to life. Yeah.
0: How's that helped me move, Jack, from <clears throat> when somebody asks me, are you going to heaven, and I say, I think I am how does that help me answer
1: that question well what what helps you answer the question uh, how how can i know i'm going to heaven is knowing you're justified we talked about this a little bit last time knowing that you have the holy spirit does not really well how do you know you have the holy spirit let's ask that question first how do you know you have the holy spirit because god promised that He would give you the Spirit in your Christian baptism. That's the only way you really know it. You don't feel something moving around inside you. But you know that the Holy Spirit is there, and you also know from your own uh, inclinations that change, wanting to do good, wanting to uh, obey where you didn't want to before, uh, you don't know because you are such a better person. You can't say, I know I'm saved because I- I've quit sinning. You can't say that because we continue to be imperfect. <coughs> Let me show you something about Romans 3.23. Remember Romans 3.23, for all have sinned, that's past tense, And the next part is present tense, and fall short of the glory of God. We still fall short of the glory of God. Uh, So it's not just past, but that we were sinners. We're still sinners with a sick nature that's under healing, and uh, every day we have the need for uh, confession of our sins to God and renewing of our knowledge that he is forgiving us. Uh, Maybe this would be a good time to go into 1 John 1 verse 9. There are a lot of people who cannot accept that they're saved because they don't understand 1 John 1 9. Um, 1 John 1 9 If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. A common idea in the Restoration Movement is that baptism is for the forgiveness of sins. Right? I hope it's a common idea because it's biblical. I hope that's what you believe and teach here. I hope that's what you personally believe, because that's what the Bible teaches. Uh, Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. But also common in the restoration movement is the idea that when you are baptized, you are baptized for the forgiveness of your sins past sins only. Only for the sins you've committed up to that point. So that when you come up out of the water of baptism, boy, you're, you're pure and clean and there's no sin on you and it's like you're an angel for a while
2: <laughs>
1: until, until you <laughs> sin again. First step, huh? But no, there, there are people who would say, I'm, I might have gone three days before I sinned again. And what do they believe happens when they sin again? They believe they go right back to hell, under condemnation of hell. That if they die after they've committed that one sin, after they've become Christians, they're lost again, condemned to hell. Until... They obey this verse in 1 John 1, 9. If they confess that sin and pray to God for forgiveness, confess and pray. They say, we've got to do that. Confess and pray. And then you get cleaned up again. You're pure and uh, angelic again. Nothing wrong with you. Totally pure. Forgiven. White as snow. Until... You sin again. So you just can't jump back in the water. <laughs> no, no, you don't need the water. You just need to confess your sins. That's what he says here. So that's the way this passage is taken. Confess your sins. Confess that specific sin, and then God will forgive it, and you're okay again. Until you sin again. And then you go back. It's a back and forth and back and forth. Somebody last time told me that he uh, knew some people who believed this, and uh, they—this uh, was a, actually a Church of Christ preacher. You want to tell me that? Yeah. Uh, not from not from Ohio, but from Texas, I believe. That uh, he believed that if a person was a Christian and baptized, he was totally pure, and if he went for several days, he'd be okay. But if if w- he committed one sin. If he looked at a woman and lusted after her, I think he said that would send him to hell at one sin unless he stopped and confessed it, repented and prayed for forgiveness of it. I've thought about that a long time and I I don't believe that's what John is talking about here. Uh, that is one of the main reasons why Christians in the churches of Christ don't have assurance of salvation, because they don't know really if, if they've sinned in the last hour, and maybe maybe there's something they've done and they're alienated from God again. So they they just they don't know where they stand before God, or they might commit a sin and know it's a sin, but they just don't get around to confessing. Maybe they'll die in the meantime, so there's no real assurance of salvation. Here's what I believe John is talking about when he says if we confess our sins. I I say look at the verse before that. And look at the verse after that. Here's what he says in verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But then, he, and then's when he says, "If we confess our, excuse me, <coughs> if we confess our sins." Then in verse uh, ten, he says, "If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us." So, verse eight and verse ten are the opposite of verse nine. So, what do verse 8 and verse 10 say? Verse 8 and verse 10 are talking about somebody who says, I have no sins. I'm not a sinner. I've not committed a sin. I'm okay the way I am. The person who says, I have no sin. I have not sinned. So, what is verse 9? But if we confess our sins, I think. The point there is not lining them up and confessing them to God one by one, but confessing to God that we are sinners. And that this is something we confess even if we're not thinking about a specific sin. We always make that confession. It's part of who we are. I think I said last time that there are three things you can identify yourself as. You're a creature. You're a sinner and you're a saint, forgiven sinner. I I like to use the uh, parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector to illustrate what I'm saying here. What is is this parable? This is in uh, Luke 18. Let me just show you what he says. Luke 18, Pharisee and the publican, as we usually say, Jesus says, this is Jesus, two men went up to the temple to pray. One is a Pharisee, the other is a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. I, I, I think that's the man John is talking about in verse 8 and verse 10. I don't have any sins." But then Jesus says, but the tax collector standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven and was beating his breast. Let me ask you this. What sin did the tax collector confess? What sin did he confess? This isn't a hard question. None! He didn't confess any sins. What did he confess? that he was a sinner. He said, and this is the way Jesus put it, he lifted up his, uh, unwilling to lift up his eyes, beating his breast, says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner, the sinner. And Jesus said that's the man that went home justified rather than the other. It's not that he came in there with a specific sin that he knew he had to confess or he would be lost until he confessed it. He was simply acknowledging who he was. And that's, that's how we know we're saved if we can confess like this man. It's not whether we've gone through a certain procedure, uh, a certain ritual of confession, but if, if we know uh, always about ourselves as Christians, that the only reason we're saved is because we're under the blood of Jesus Christ, because we are sinners. God, we're sinners. So that, that's part of the assurance of salvation. Yeah. It's not because of how good we are. I don't want to put it this way, but how bad we are. No, no. <laughs> no, it's because we know we're bad, and the only reason we can be saved is because we're trusting in the blood of Jesus. When you mentioned the age of accountability, what makes us accountable? Uh, I'm glad you asked that question because I I will actually tell you this illustration that happened here at this church long enough ago that uh, none of the preachers here would be responsible for it, I think. I remember when uh, the invitation to him was offered once, a little girl, about five years old, came forward. And the youth minister at that time, I, I don't remember who it was, he took the confession. And he, he asked one question, why do you want to be baptized? And her answer, I'll never forget it, in her little childish voice, because I love Jesus. I love Jesus, so she's being baptized. Uh, I don't know, I hope that wasn't somebody that's here tonight. But um, age of accountability does does not necessarily involve anything about Jesus. It's not what you know about Jesus, it's what you know about yourself. It's what you know about God's law you may not ever have ever heard of the gospel or of Jesus but children growing up in Buddhist homes and Muslim homes and Hindu homes and atheist homes they get to the age of accountability because they begin to understand from what's written on their heart that there is law from a God who is our creator. The age of accountability Actually depends on how well when we when a child starts to understand that there's such a thing as law and such a thing as the lawgiver and that we're under the law of God and must answer to Him and this is something that comes Romans one and two this is very important from Romans one and two from what we know of God from the creation around us and what we know of the law from what's written on our hearts. And Paul says uh, there at the end of that first, uh, yeah, first chapter in Romans, that the people who commit these sins know that they deserve death. They know that. And that's kind of when a child becomes accountable. Is when they start to understand these things. Now, if your child grows up in the church, which most of us probably did, or a lot of us did, that's much, uh, we have such a great advantage over those who are growing up as pagans. Because those who grow up as pagans come to the age of accountability and don't have a clue what to do about it. But when we grow up in the church, uh, we learn about Jesus Even before we know we're sinners, and even before we know Him as Savior, we know about Jesus and we love Jesus. But we don't reach the age of accountability until we can know Jesus as Savior from sin. Okay. Any question about that?
2: No, I have another question. Well, I have two. One's a statement. In addition to you knowing your business, you can sing. (laughs) <laughs>
1: me, 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 yeah.
2: <laughs> okay, when we say the Lord's Prayer in unison, I have your version of Bible too as well as all the other ones out there. Do we use that or do we use the NIV or they remove the ending of the
1: Lord's Prayer? Most, most modern translations remove the ending. Not It's not just what I've got or what the NIV. Most of them do. And they base that on uh, new uh, discoveries in the area of New Testament criticism, and that's not my expertise. But whichever one you have in your pew, (laughs) use that, uh, use whatever the preacher says, uh, with or without the ending. Because we don't really know for sure whether that was in the original. Some people are dogmatic about it. Uh, To me, sometimes you just, you can't make, you can't be sure about it. I'm fine to use it or not to use it.
0: Um, in Second Peter three eighteen, it says uh, it encourages us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ.
1: Yeah. How does one grow in grace? By being at a meeting like this, mm-hmm. by understanding more of what it means. By allowing the Holy Spirit to take over more of your life so that you are not just receiving one dose of medicine in your baptism, but so that you're actually being more and more healed as you grow as a Christian. It's making sure that uh, you are faithful in your church life, things like that, yeah. Growing in grace, growing in knowledge too, that the two go together actually. I give it to you, brother.
0: Thank you, Jack. Thank you. Being here this evening, and uh, if you have other questions, you can stop up and He'll be here for a few more minutes. But so thanks for being here tonight. Thanks, for setting us up. And uh, have a great evening.
1: The floor is now read. Just how mad is she? Oh really? Yeah. Oh, how about that? <laughs> just how mad is she? I, I forget what the song the sign actually said. It, it was very close to the propitiation idea, but I, I, it just left my mind here. That, that's good. Yeah. How about that? Did you go in and get a bunch? I, I've, I think flower shops do that a lot I've seen others <laughs> like it Jack i got a, I
2: got a question I, and you may get into this at your next session but, but what do you say to the person who has this once saved always saved idea and he says I know I have the Holy Spirit because I let Jesus into my heart and I was at a church service and he said all you have
1: to do
0: is accept him
1: next time I'm going a- to Talk a lot about uh,
0: baptism and about
1: faith only. So I'm going to I will get into that specifically. That uh, we cannot really have an assurance uh, that the Holy Spirit is in us unless we've been baptized. That's where the Bible says we receive the Holy Spirit. So, this person who says that, Uh, let me show you a passage of Scripture. A lot of times people believe that because they look at something in themselves and they feel something in themselves or identify something in themselves. They feel
2: different. They feel the Holy
1: Spirit. Here's something Jesus said that needs to be kept in mind. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord,
2: did we not
1: prophesy in your name, in your name cast out demons, and your name perform many miracles? These are things that they have done, things about themselves. And Jesus says, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that were lawlessness. Because they haven't obeyed the will of the Father. They're just looking at themselves, something in themselves. That's Matthew 7, 23, uh, 21 to 23. Where you, uh, the Word of God, you see, he's pointing to the will of God the law of God. We, have we obeyed that, or are you just looking at things you have done? Think that that's a sign. He says that's not the sign. When you get into uh, also about losing one's salvation,
2: um, once in grace, always in
1: grace. I've got a place for it in my outline. If I don't get to it. <laughs>